Um, well, thank you very much for having the opportunity to present my current research here. And right at the beginning, I would like to say that it's really a very recent project. So what I'm going to say here basically um, yeah, is very new, not only maybe not to you, but to me in many ways too. And in that um, sense, also preliminary. And I would very much encourage you to, um, if you have any questions or any suggestions in how to make this project better, to uh, forward them to me. Um, actually, I have to say that I'm um, quite happy that the Marchand Center does not require its fellows to wear some kind of utensil, which would basically tell anybody that I'm a Merchant Fellow. And I'm saying this because um, a friend of mine was a Humboldt Fellow, and he had to wear a tie, the official Humboldt tie, uh, at any occasion. And I was just wondering what this would be in case of the Merchant Center, whether it would also be a tie or something um, different. And um, coming from a German university with a very huge tradition and one which is also also very, um, yeah, the, the city of Freiburg is very health conscious and environmental conscious. Uh, I'm also glad that they do not require me to wear something because I'm sure that it would be something as fancy as Birkenstock shoes or something like this. So um, what uh, I have not brought um, something with me, um, but um, I would like to give you a sense of the tradition from which I am coming and for which the University of Freiburg stands. And um, one of these traditions is, for example, that the um, doctoral certificates are still issued in Latin. So if you get them, you would get that whole uh, the long sentences in Latin, which nobody speaks anymore and most people really don't understand, but that is part of the cultural tradition of Freiburg. Moreover, as a kind of ritual on official occasions, we would um, address especially the president of the university, but also the faculty dean with specific Latin words, which are um, magnificens, and spectabilis for both the um, president of the university and the faculty dean. So I would like to start with that very tradition, uh, traditional um, uh, sentence. And I do so because I believe that this tradition has something to do with my research. Uh, I'm basically working about the cultural traditions that inform international cooperation. Um, so in the German tradition, I start with Magnificent, Spectabilis, dear colleagues and guests. Thank you for um, giving me this opportunity to present my research. And the link to my topic is the weight of history. How does it trans translate into outcomes in IR? And the core question that I'm dealing with is what are the differences between the cooperation practice of Europe and Asia? And I'm focusing on Asia, but as you will quickly realize, I'm also comparing it to the European 
experience in order to show that what we today conceive as international cooperation is basically a European pattern of cooperation that has become universalized. So I basically start with two key observations. The first one is, <clears throat> this is by the way, the map of, of Asia, of the Asian continent, just in order to uh, give you a quick glance on what I'm talking about. And I start with the key observations. Southeast and Northeast Asia lack formalized international institutions that we know from other regions, most importantly Europe, but also Latin America. The most important international institution is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations established in 1967 by five South Southeast Asian states and successively extended to 10 Southeast Asian states in the 1990s. According to its own record, the organization's aim was to promote peace and stability in the region and to do so primarily by promoting each state's individual welfare. The reasoning behind this concept was that economic welfare would ultimately provide the precondition for stability as it would make each member state less prone to internal upheavals that might affect regional neighbors and present less opportunities for external powers <coughs> to intervene. And from the beginning, the members shunned away from a stronger institutionalized cooperation. The institutional setup resembled, in the words of a former general secretary of ASEAN, a flying circus as the secretariat shifted among the member states. Within its first 25 years, the heads of states, the highest decision-making forum, met only three times. The official intergovernmental track one process was paralleled by an unofficial track two process figuring influential security think tanks in the region. And as most would say, we're much more influential in shaping Southeast Asian regional politics than the official track one, track one process. It was only in 1992 that the ASEAN Secretariat assumed the competence to initiate, advise, coordinate, and implement ASEAN activities. This, however, seemed to be an exaggeration as most ASEAN projects ultimately did not foresee a significant role for the Secretariat. So ASEAN soon acquired a reputation for being a talk shop only. Instead of managing its conflicts, member states officially brushed them under the carpet. And that was, of course, noticed by many observers who basically expected ASEAN to deal with its many interstate conflicts. They, however, simply prefer to not talk about them. Nevertheless, after the end of the Cold War, ASEAN members increased their standing when they initiated several forums that for the first time would bring together the major regional powers, Japan, the US and China and other East Asian nations to discuss security and economic issues. A watershed in its cooperation efforts became the Asian financial crisis, um, which at the end of the 1990s shook several Southeast Asian countries. And after that crisis, those member states basically sped up their activities and became more Proactive. Member states agreed on several action plans foreseeing the gradual deepening of integration, the development of an ASEAN charter, and even the promotion of democracy and human rights, which basically 
challenged the ASEAN sacrosanct principle of non-interference in domestic affairs. After 1997, ASEAN held regular summits with China, Japan, and South Korea, and in December two, uh, 2005, it announced the launching of an East Asian community. Despite very limited measurable effects, ASEAN and institutions such as the ARF, which has ASEAN as their nucleus, are being regarded as some of the most successful international organizations outside of Europe. And one observer, Anthony Smith, expressed this emerging consensus on ASEAN in the following statement. He said, the consensus on ASEAN through to the early 1990s amongst many scholars and journalists was that it was a body without parallel in the developing world. Yet, a closer look at the organization appeared to reveal another more disturbing reality and one which I have put in the second um, point here. Um, despite the rhetoric of cooperation, ASEAN members show little willingness to actually comply with their own rhetoric. Although ASEAN members have developed sophisticated plans for further institutionalization, they leave, ASEAN statements leave no doubt about who will be ultimately responsible for implementing these policies, the individual ASEAN members, not a supranational or intergovernmental institution. These, however, that means the member states have in the past shown little interest in living up to their rhetoric. This dissonance between the re rhetoric and reality of cooperation led David Martin, and Jones, uh, David Martin Jones and Michael Smith in a recent article in International Security to conclude that behind all the rhetoric of ASEAN ultimately stood an intergovernmental organization in which the distinct member interests determined the probability and pace of integration. <coughs> and they go even further and say, those who seek to embellish it as a framework for a more integrated ASEAN identity grounded in its distinctive norms and processes and framed by its inimical discourse only succeed in creating not a community, but an illusion. That means they even go as far as to claim that ASEAN, due to its consensus-driven and conflict-avoiding process, is increasingly being manipulated by outside powers. In short, and I quote them here, norms are what states pursuing their strategic self-interest make of them. While it is true that hopes for further integration might be an illusion, it is not exactly clear what follows from the inside that ASEAN states pursue their national interests for an Asian security order. Um, the question for me here is, does that mean that it will develop the destructive di dynamics that we know from Europe, making Asia less stable? Many scholars actually have argued so. Aaron Friedberg, for example, in an article in the early 1990s, held that Asia was ripe for rivalry, and Thomas Christensen has identified a security dilemma in Asia that given historical animosities between Japan and China in the region, increase the probability of war. While not re directly related to my topic, institution building in Asia, this debate is in so far linked to institutions as international <coughs> institutions are widely regarded as being capable 
of mitigating such security dilemmas. Their absence or weakness is therefore seen as an indicator for either more or less stability in Asia. In this context, I want to show that how we evaluate future developments in Asia obviously has something to do with our prior experiences and theories. Yet, these have not been developed on the backdrop of Asia's experience, but on the one of Europe, which raises the question whether they can be easily transferred to Asia. That means that one of my tasks will be to show that by adopting a different framework, we might come to different conclusions about stability in Southeast Asia and maybe also in East Asia. The questions I address in my project are the following. Why does a pattern of less formalized and institutionalized forms of cooperation practice prevail in Asia? Also, Asian states have made a number of attempts to become more integrated. And second, why does Asia appear to be contrary to all predictions about the future instability of the region, a relative stable region in which the many conflicts have not escalated to war? Why is it widely, and finally, why is it widely regarded as a successful organization. And I basically do not claim that conventional theories have no answer to this. What I do claim is that conventional IR theories tell us nothing about the mechanics of Asian international relations. And more importantly, because they don't tell us nothing about the Asian mechanics of international relations, especially realist theories, overestimate the potential for conflict in the region. What is the major puzzle in, term, in terms of ASEAN cooperation for these theories? In my view, at issue, at issue is precisely the contradiction. It is the gap between a rhetoric and institutional form celebrating the benefits of international cooperation on the one hand and the de facto practice of policies that are oriented toward the perceived national interests of the ASEAN members, on the other hand, that needs to be explained. And the real puzzle is why ASEAN, despite all these contradictions, are, is nevertheless regarded as so successful. That means instead of joining the chorus of voices that, by looking at ASEAN's rhetoric, expect ASEAN cooperation to deepen, or those who argue that by looking at ASEAN's practice, ASEAN will not change in the foreseeable future, I prefer to look at ASEAN as it is, contradictory. And I make the following arguments. Regional order building in Asia follows a specific logic that differentiates itself from the European or Western logic of cooperation through institutionalized cooperation. Both logics are embedded in distinct modernities, a European and an Asian one. And from this perspective, ASEAN is a hybrid organization combining elements of a European modernity with those of an Asian modernity. Both have their respective advantages. The emulation of institutionalized cooperation according to the European example virtually shields ASEAN member states from outside interference as membership in an international organization provides prestige and legitimacy and signals autonomy for member states, especially in their interaction with Western powers. The mechanics of an Asian modernity programs 
Asian states to develop a non-hierarchical type of international cooperation that can be described as network governance. Network governance is a flexible, creative mechanism characterized by socially binding, and I would like to emphasize that not legally binding uh, norms, consensus-oriented, and a consensus-oriented policy style that does not produce the public forums or does not necessarily produce and rely on the public forums to discuss contentious issues. The combination of these two modernities in ASEAN produces what we perceive as contradiction between rhetoric and reality. Because the Asian program of modernity-inspired cooperation among ASEAN has proved to be uniquely successful in promoting stability in the region, overall ASEAN is considered a success successful organization. And as further aims of my projects, I would like to identify the following topics. First, I would like to identify the mechanisms and processes through which this Asian logic is being reproduced. And second, I want to explore whether the reproduction of this pattern of cooperation makes it more or less likely that Asia will be stable in the future. There are, of course, a number of competing explanations for the less institutionalized and contradictory type of cooperation in Asia. And I have to say that I find none of them very satisfying. In fact, I believe that the less institutionalized and contradictory type of cooperation in Asia poses specific puzzles for each of the theoretical IR approaches. Um, sorry, I missed that slide. Um, uh, the puzzles for realism are, well, basically, if we, if we focus first on how, does, how would realism explain this um, observation? Um, we have to say that basically realism has absolutely no problem, neither with the gap nor with less institutionalized forms of cooperation. I mean, basically what they are saying is, well, states do not what they are saying. They don't stick to their rhetoric. They don't cooperate. That's exactly what we are expecting. So um, for realism, the case is relatively clear. Um, Asian states find themselves in an anarchical system. They look for relative gains, fear being dominated by other states. And because the Asian regional order is anarchic and states are engulfed in a security dilemma, only the self-interested policies of Asian states can guarantee regional stability. As this will, in this logic, automatically or quasi-automatically lead to a balance of power. According to realism, the major sources of instability are China and Japan, as they are both regarded dissatisfied great powers which can only be held in check by the U.S., as such, the U.S. as an external power is needed as a balancer against both states, which explains the extent of bilateral security cooperation among Southeast Asian states and the U.S. The regionally extended ASEAN institutions, such, such as the ASEAN Regional Forum and ASEAN Plus Three, are then NATO-like instruments that have been set up to keep the U.S. in, and at the si same time, Japan, China, and the U.S. down. 
Also, realists have a strong case. The explanation is primarily strong because they turn a blind eye on the cooperation side of the Asian security order. If one is not inclined to do so for realism, there are two major puzzles. First, why has institutionalized cooperation persisted for so long? So long? And I would just like to remind that this year ASEAN celebrates its 40th um, birthday. And why do member states engage in routine efforts to strengthen their relationship? Finally, why do they not openly balance? A power balance obviously only works effectively if states know against whom they balance. Yet what has stunned most observers is the reluctance of many Asian states to basically identify a common enemy, and they take great pains in avoiding any public language that might suggest that they are actually balancing. For rational institutionalist, institutionalist approaches in IR, Asian cooperation is equally puzzling, at least from a specific standpoint. According to institutionalism, the establishment of ASEAN can be explained out of a collective demand for a security institution that would enable the cooperative management of the many intramural um, conflicts among Southeast Asian states. And ASEAN and ARF then appear um, ideal institutions to do so. At the same time, there was a dual interest on behalf of Southeast Asian states as weak states marked by internal conflicts and facing the difficult task of nation building to stabilize their domestic order. So what we find is that we not only have an objective demand, but also overlapping interests that facilitate the creation of these institutions. And from this perspective, it can also be explained why we have this different normative setup with its strong em uh, emphasis on non-interference, consensual de uh, decision-making, which is then simply a function of the domestic interests um, of those states. The puzzle for institutionalism, in my view, is the ineffectiveness of these institutions. Why did they not set up effective institutions that would have allowed them to do so? As Michael Leifer has noted, the ASEAN peace process is a category mistake. The Asian peace process, which has been expressed primarily in an informal process of confidence building and trust creation, has never been directed to solving intramural problems. Preventive diplomacy has been a notable exception in dispute settlement beyond ASEAN's um, capabilities. Um, so at issue for institutionalism is why do ASEAN members set up these institutions if they, these institutions if, if they are at the same time not willing to use it and why do they sustain it for 40 years? And these puzzles have eventually created the theoretical openings for constructivism. According to constructivist theories, if we want to evaluate Asian regionalism, it is more important to look at the normative and ideational role it has played and not at its substantial outcome. According to Amitav Akaria, the chief impact of ASEAN and ARF on regional security, and I quote him here, has been in engaging the major powers of the Asia-Pacific and persuading them 
to consider a rule-based alternative to balancing strategies and behavior. ASEAN and ARF bind the more powerful actors, China, Japan, and the US, and socialize them into ASEAN community norms of non-interference, peaceful conflict management, the non-use of force, and respect for the members' sovereignty. According to proponents of constructivism, these aspects of identity building and socialization allow states to eventually develop collective understandings that will eventually bring about cooperation, reinforce initial cooperation, and over the long run, mitigate the security dilemma in Asia. And interestingly, constructivists basically start from the assumption that we have um, an anarchical order or anarchy in, in Asia. So while constructivism has done an excellent job in describing the normative self-understanding of Asian regionalism, it does not provide a convincing account for the fact that socialization has not developed the dynamic leading to the reinforcement of cooperation. Moreover, it lacks a systematic account for the genesis of this particular set of norms. Why do we find these norms only in Asia? Why not in America? I mean, they also, Latin American states also place a lot of emphasis on their state sovereignty, but nevertheless, they seem to have developed more effective institutions. And the questions that I have for constructive, or the question that I have for constructivism is basically, what is the deeper social structure that produces these norms? Finally, in my view, in emphasizing the identity building aspects of cooperation only, and this uh, is something I find quite um, interesting in the literature, um, constructivists ultimately underestimate the de facto effects of this type of cooperation. That means basically say, well, it doesn't really matter that there is no outcome as long as we can observe all these identity building processes. Um, interestingly, however, recent statistical um, analysis show on the liberal, liberal peace in Asia suggests that ASEAN as an institution or organization is correlated indeed with less militarized interstate disputes. So there is basically an effect and a measurable impact but then this raises the question of how an institution that does not provide for conflict resolution mechanisms and that, according to most constructivist accounts, is only beginning to socialize its members has actually achieved this. To sum up this part, a full explanation of cooperation in, in Asia must accomplish the following. It must account for the gap between rhetoric and practice in Asian cooperation, it must provide an explanation for the specific characteristics of Asian regional cooperation, which can be summarized, summarized as little institutionalized with a preference for non-legally binding norms, consensual decision-making, and the avoidance of open conflicts. Finally, it must be able to explain why ASEAN, despite all its deficiencies, according to conventional theories, manages to be widely regarded as a successful organization. And I believe that the explanation that I'm proposing, a combination of European and Asian modernity accomplishes this. This explanation basically is a combination for those of you who are more familiar with um, these terms, sociological institutionalist, 
um, approaches which place emphasis on the fact that specific models of statehood have traveled from Europe and have set a standard for other parts of the world and a historical sociological explanation that takes into consideration that these regions might have their own social structures. <coughs> and for me, the basic topic then is how do these different social structures jointly produce a Southeast Asian or, if we want to extend that, an East Asian security order? So this is basically the, the setup that I'm proposing. As you can see here, I have that. I say it's, it's a European program of modernity that comes from the international level and it's somehow um, matched by an Asian program of modernity. And the interaction between these two programs basically produces what we perceive as, as this contradiction. Um, sociological institutionalism assumes that cultural and institutional frames shape and constitute the nature, purposes, behavior, and meaning of actors, no matter whether this, these are individuals, organizations, or states. Um, it basically holds that international organizations or other institution, international institutions promote specific understandings about appropriate behavior that state actors more or less mechanistically adopt through emulation, socialization, persuasion, or routine practices because it increases their legitimacy, their access to resources, and therefore their survival capabilities in an international system. So what counts is not so much the efficient coordination and control but the degree to which these organizations become isomorphic with their institutional environments. Um, and this ritual of institutional synchronization, according to soci sociological institutionalism, then produces specific norms of behavior, but it does not necessarily generate the effects that are usually associated with these norms because activity is mainly directed at creating the illusion that something happens and uh, to validate the organization as such. And following this argument, I argue that ASEAN, by establishing regional cooperation, has at least formally adopted the model of institutionalized international cooperation for which Europe has become a trendsetter since the 19th century. ASEAN members not only responded to functional demands for a cooperative institution, they also embraced a model of cooperation that regards international institutions as efficient solutions to collective action problems under the condition of interdependence and common interests, even as they did not commit themselves to a project of political and economic integration comparable to the EC. And this can also be um, already be seen in the Bangkok Declaration, the founding document of ASEAN of 1967, in which ASEAN um, member states define similar objective, 
objectives as the EC did for theirs. That is the desire to promote regional cooperation, to contribute towards peace, progress, and prosperity in the region. Um, if we look at major um, statements by ASEAN today, we find even more um, overlappings. Um, basically, ASEAN has adopted the EU talk. It speaks of um, a three-pillared structure. It uh, develops an ASEAN charter that is often likened to an ASEAN constitution. It established a troika and has adopted a community concept although the latter, unlike in the uh, EU, does not stand for a supranational structure. But we find, nevertheless, um, this whole array of EU talk also in ASEAN's rhetoric. What were the benefits? Consequently, ASEAN member states have been rewarded with legitimacy and prestige, especially in the light of the fact that most ASEAN countries for most of the organization's lifetime were authoritarian polities that increased the individual weight in the international community and strengthened their international bargaining power. So basically, what I'm saying is ASEAN is an illusion, but it is a necessary illusion because it shields ASEAN member states effectively from outside interference and um, increases their survival uh, probabilities. Um, the problem here is that sociological institutionalism, or it's not really a problem, but it's something that, uh, that in, uh, sociological institutionalism explains quite well, basically said, because we have that illusion, um, we don't have necessarily the practice associated with it. And they call this decoupling because international organizations aspire to conform to the more or less formalized standards, they decouple institutional structure from activities as that guarantees basically continued legitimacy. And this is in fact what the critique of ASEAN seems to be all about. It focuses on the fact that ASEAN does not live up to its self-proclaimed goals, a fact that is then interpreted as realist or interest-driven, as we have seen in the evaluation of Jones and Smith that I presented at the beginning of this talk, and used as evidence to support the claim that Asia will be less stable in the future because it does not really come up with um, these effective institutions. I argue that to fully account for ASEAN's contradictory nature, it is necessary to complement this explanation with a historical soci sociological approach because ultimately what I have sh shown up until now is um, that we have the Asian program of modernity basically coming down. I'm going to say something more about this program later. Um, and I have explained the gap between rhetoric and practice, but still, I mean, that was one of my first um, statements. We don't we don't know that much about the me mechanics of Asian international um, relations. And in order to account for these mechanics, I basically turn to a paradigm that um, 
that is more discussed in sociology, that of multiple modernities. And the multiples modernities paradigm is uh, very much associated with um, the work of persons such as uh, Schmuel Eisenstadt. Um, and the core of multiple modernities lies in assuming the existence of culturally specific forms of modernity shaped by distinct cultural heritages and social political conditions. That means what he basically says is we have to look not only at European modernity, but especially also at the modernities, how they evolved in regions outside of Europe. And I find that multiple modernity paradigm in so far quite attractive for my own research because it does not really say that there are cultures that are unchangeable, but especially in, in Eisenstadt's writings, it adopts a very variable-oriented approach, um, which is, in my view, very much compatible with IR theoretical um, approaches. Um, and I have to say that it finds increasing resonance among IR scholars. We have had several articles in the European um, Journal of International Relations calling for a historical sociology of international relations. We have Eric Ringmar's book who basically sets out to explain the two different modernities in Europe and East Asia. So there is a little bit, or um, at least for uh, sociology, a substantial uh, literature focusing on multiple modernities. Um, in short, my argument concerning diverging social structures is the, is the following. Regional cooperation and formalized institution building in Europe follows a specific program of modernity. Regional cooperation or non-cooperation um, follows an Asian program which also state and interest-centered might not necessarily lead to the des destructive tendencies that led to major wars in Europe. And now in laying out this program of the two modernities, I very much have to simplify, and I apologize for that, but um, at the moment I can't really uh, go into more detail. Moreover, I have to say that when I refer to an Asian modernity, I have to depart from Southeast Asia because the literature on Asian modernity basically focuses on China and Japan, which poses for me the question how to translate that into a Southeast Asian modernity or whether I can treat it interchangeably. So this is only a very um, short statement uh, in advance before I try to develop the basic lines. If we look at the European modernity, um, according to this literature, we find that it is characterized by a strong cultural and ideological pluralism, which basically provided the basis for the development of quite heterogeneous political projects. Active conflicts between forces of the periphery, and I'm talking about the societal peri periphery here, and the administrative centers in Europe resulted in institution building as devices 
to regulate these conflicts and channel resources through these institutions in an attempt to realize different political programs. The strong polar polarization between state institutions and civil societies led not only to ideological politics, but to the establishment of public spheres and mutually enabled the formation of strong protest movements that were able to contest political symbols, programs, and political legitimacy, and that developed the capacities to formulate principled political demand. That means conflict resolution through institutions, according to this paradigm, is an approach that is programmed by the European program of modernity. The European program of modernity further emphasizes what Max Weber has once termed the rationality of technical control over the world, and basically rationality. Individuals as much as nature are guided by autonomous laws that can be scientifically uncovered. Once we know how the world works, we are able to change it. If we um, compare this with um, an Asian program of modernity, um, we also, we basically find the, find the same variables, but they sort of uh, connect differently and therefore produce different outcomes. We also find active struggles between the administrative center and the periphery, yet both are less interdependent than in the European context and therefore these conflicts are also less marked than in Europe. And I have tried to show that by simply putting them uh, at the center and periphery, not at, at such a large distance. Um, um, the weaker polarization between center and periphery and the fact that the periphery was also less heterogeneous precipitated societal developments different from Europe. In Japan, for example, for example weaker polarization led to a network society there did not develop clear demarcations between political or different arenas of action. Institutional arenas are being defined in terms of its relation to the social nexus in which it is embedded, but we don't have these autonomous institutional arenas that we find in Europe. As a consequence, actors of civil society, which are nevertheless there, have consequently been less able and also been less forced to generalize their political demands into principal demands. Major arenas of social actions have not been regulated by distinct autonomous, legal, bureaucratic, or voluntary organizations, but mostly through less formal arrangement and networks. And so the multiple modernity uh, modernity paradigm basically holds that we would find that primarily in domestic contexts. Um, the work of Peter Katzenstein, for example, shows that this also seems to inform uh, regionalization in East Asia with Japan as its center, or what he has um, uh, termed network regionalism, I believe. I, I can't say that at the moment. In China, 
and in extension, some of the countries that were dominated by it, the weaker plurality of peripheral actors led to a stronger control of resources through the administrative center and thereby to the development of hierarchical relationships. Societal actors were able to develop some autonomy, but they never acquired the degree of political legitimacy that we know from Europe. Most of societal areas were regulated according to Confucian law and the public space remained limited to a small circle of academics and privileged and did not develop much autonomy. They developed a potential for protest movements which initially also had a universalist orientation, yet this protest movement successively did not develop the capacity leading to new ideologies and frames of action. As a consequence, they did not result in the wide-ranging institutional changes that we could only observe in Europe. Moreover, key Asian philosophies share a belief that the world works according to metaphysical principles that cannot be changed by individuals. That means an emphasis is put here on virtues such as self-discipline and an increase um, of one's own welfare. And I would wish, or I wished, that I could um, show in some detail now how these different mechanics basically translate into um, international politics and into the mechanisms that guide um, international relations in Asia. Unfortunately, my project is not far enough to really do this here, but I believe what becomes, or what I, I believe that what becomes obvious is that the, basically the features that characterize each modernity also appear to figure quite high in regional cooperation. Thus, the Asian practice of cooperation through networks, its tendency to emulate external stimuli into its own policies is facilitated by the many networks that make such emulation possible. Emphasis on individual achievements rather than competition is reflected in the Asian rhetoric of economic development as a precondition for stability. The norm of non-interference can be readily connected to a collective understanding that what happens in the real world ultimately cannot be influenced by active intervention. So if we look at those um, um, two paradigms, I argue that conceptualized in this way, ASEAN can be described as a hybrid organization in which these two types of modernity come together, rhetorically a European and in practice a Southeast Asian program. And these two produce the contradictory outcomes that we observe. Why is ASEAN widely regarded as an effective institution? As I have said at the beginning, because it has successfully emulated the European role model and thereby increased its recognition, prestige, and, as I said at the beginning, shielded uh, member states from external interference. The Asian program, on the other hand, effectively prevents the outbreak of conflicts we usually associate with developing authoritarian or transitional States. Um, as I mentioned during my talk, there exists a robust corpus of evidence 
claiming or showing that ASEAN indeed correlates with um, uh, less militarized interstate disputes. If we look at ASEAN, um, at individual ASEAN member countries, we see um, that even during times of transition, especially for example in Indonesia, when there occurred separatist movements, Asian ASEAN member states would not take a position and that and exit quite a bit of self-restraint and did not interfere into these domestic processes. Um, as a summary, I would just very quickly um, point to the implications for IR theories that I see. Most IR theories do not capture the profound otherness of non-European or non-Western regions. Realist theories basically assume that given the pervasiveness of an anarchical system, the security problematic will be the same in every region, but even institutionalist and to a certain extent also constructivist approaches share this Eurocentric bias. And in my view, it is in the logic of this type of explanation that we learn about Asia only through the lenses of IR theories that in most cases have been developed on the backdrop of the European experience. In my view, in our theories, we thereby reproduce the conditions of a European modernity, but acquire not much knowledge about the social structure of other regions. The main tenet of the paradigm of multiple modernities is that our understanding of modernity, which is deeply shaped by the European or more generally Western experience, must be decentered to provide a perspective on other historical experiences and outcomes. For some IR theories, this means that they must be pluralized beyond the homogenizing views historically rooted in the rapid emergence of a Western-centric world order during the 19th and early 20th century. In the case of Asia, this is the more imminent as the discourse on Asia is heavily dominated by perspective by perspectives that view key Asian states as threat to international peace and security. And my last sentence on this is, what I wanted to show is that just because we don't see institution, institutions working the way we are expecting them according to our own European or Western experience, does not say that um, regional security order is not going on and that we have to look at the effects of these different um, security order in, uh, to evaluate whether they are as effective as European ones. Thank you very much for your attention. Basically, I would say I can't um, tell it as it is. I can only say it's a combination of particular variables that I can observe only indirectly by looking at the outcomes it produces. Uh, so 
Um, I mean, that's, that's in a way a question I have, I have expected because I thought, okay, I mean, how can you um, explain so much variation? But I find it, I, I believe what I want to express by this term of social structure is, although I cannot really um, show that this social structure determines particular events, that there are some variables that show up in cooperation and um, that produce conflicts or cooperation. So maybe that's my argument. Is that an answer to your question? <laughs> I hope. <laughs> yes. I just can you just uh, what is the argument behind behind this that Indonesia hates Malaysia? 
And that explains why they don't integrate. Yeah. Ah, okay. Mm -hmm. So basically, so basically, in terms of Europe, is that uh, question connected or shall I answer it? Did you have one? Okay. Okay, then I answer that first. Um, I mean, I completely agree with you that realists would simply say it doesn't matter. Modernity does not matter. And everything can be explained within the realist paradigm. But as I said, I mean, nevertheless, they, this institution simply exists. So it ha there has to be an explanation for this. And um, the question whether it is um, an, or ever intended to become an EU, um, I don't think so. No, they did not. What they did was, however, to emulate that experience because it is nevertheless a very successful experience. It teaches basically other countries that if you cooperate, your conflicts can be solved. I mean, this is the great lesson, I believe, that the European integration process, and I'm not talking about the European integration process since the 1950s, but basically for me it starts in the 19th um, century. Um, what this uh, integration process has taught other countries. So no, they did not aspire to, and they took great pains in really differentiating their own approach from a European one, but nevertheless, in this whole setup, I mean, they bought this whole, whole script of cooperate and you will have peace. And I'm not sure whether this is really what Asian states um, are required to do. We want them to do so um, because it's more familiar with our own program. But so far, we don't know enough how conflict-ridden or peace uh, um, Full will this uh, this new Asian security order will be, and what I wanted to accomplish was simply to to point to these dynamics and say, well, if we look at Asia, we can't simply um, take our European experience um, and just leave that unquestioned. We must look at what we find there, and. Um, I also agree with you that there are enough conflicts among Asian states, and especially Southeast Asian states, which, um, by the way, have come up, um, especially during the Asian financial crisis. But, I mean, that's, that's part of the contradiction. I mean, one of their goals was exactly to prevent these conflicts, or at least prevent their outbreak. And although they have not... <laughs> succeeded in integrating as much as Europe did, they have um, basically managed to do it with, a, with, an, with an institution that does not conform at all, at all to our expectations. And that's the, the puzzle that raises, that is being raised for me. Or maybe because they just don't have enough power to fight mm. each other. Malaysia in 1998 was completely bankrupt, and Singapore is too small to be anybody. 
do you believe that Indonesia had enough power in the 1960s to to wage a war? Yeah, but then war is obviously not a question of capabilities. If you want to have war, you can have war. Okay. My understanding of the origins of ASEAN is that it was an alternative to American dominance mm. of the region. Um, and the fact that it comes in the middle of the Vietnam War is no accident by any means. Now, I don't know that the, the leaders who formed ASEAN have the European community much as a model. It's an interesting comparison because European integration was an American-sponsored project. The Americans were critical at every stage of the move toward European integration from the Schuman plan up to um, you know, the, the, the common market um, in the mid-50s. So I think there's, a, there's more of a contrast historically than mm. a comparison, if, if I'm correct, that, the, that ASEAN is an indigenous regional order which is concerned about American hegemony and the spillover of the Vietnam War throughout the region. And there's also a concern at that time about Chinese expansion, whereas the European project is an American-sponsored project, which goes hand-in-hand hand with, with NATO and the reintegration of Germany into Western Europe after the war. So would your argument be that the U.S. makes a difference? Well, I think it's, it's a critical factor that you need to consider mm. in your overall analysis. If the genesis of these two different regional organizations is significant to your project, and I think it probably is, I see one as, as working hand-in-hand -hand with the United States, mm. and mm. I see the other as, as being against the United States. What, what American documents make clear is that the Johnson administration at the time it's <coughs> could care less about ASEAN, and that's true for the Nixon administration. It isn't even embraced by the United States until the four years after Vietnam is over. And as far as, as European integration, I mean, it's obvious, going back to the Truman administration, that that's a critical mm. weapon in the overall Cold War strategy of the United States. Are your questions also to this? Okay, I try to answer that relatively quickly. Um, there are obviously differences. So, and when I understand your argument correctly, then you basically argue that ASEAN did not develop this life of its own that we know from, from Europe because there was no external backing. And because it was, it def and there was no external backing because first ASEAN definitely differentiated itself from the U.S. while Europe just did not. 
and um, yeah, because I mean there were those financial resources that backed up integration. Am I correct in this reframing? I just try to to translate it into my own thinking. Um, and I find that argument quite interesting because um, first of all, I have to say that I am absolutely aware of the difficulties really in introducing this modernity paradigm because the, the realist argument really is particularly strong in the case of Asia. At the same time, um, what, why I believe that the U.S. role is overestimated is, first of all, that I believe, um, although U.S. integration was sponsored by the U.S., um, it might have developed out of its own because there was already a dynamic in place. And this is what I show, try to show through this European Modernity Project. We have basically a practice that cherishes the establishment of institutions for solving conflicts, that has at the same time the reflexive institutions to evaluate that, that institutional setup, and um, has therefore very different preconditions for regional integration. So, I mean, Katzenstein and Hemmer, for example, they make that argument because of the different U.S. approach. We basically have bilateral, a bilateral focus on bilateralism um, of the U.S. in Asia and a focus on multilateralism in Europe. And my argument in this regard is, well, basically the U.S. did not have another choice because the structures were not there in Asia to set up a multilateral framework right from the start. So what they basically did was they responded to what was already there. And in Europe, these structures were there. There already were multilateral uh, structures in place. And they came in at a very late point in time. But um, I'm not sure whether the European Integration Project would not have come up um, if the U.S. had not supported it. Jennifer. Mm -hmm. 
Um, actually, I ask that question myself several times. Why do I need to go that deep? Um, but um, I believe it's um, a dissatisfaction. I believe that if you just say, well, basically, I mean, what I do is I say these cultures or what I term modernities program states. And, I, and also I realize that the expression might be um, too strong because it basically um, suggests that there is a kind of determination. Um, I go that deep because I believe that rationalists, they are very good in describing all the different preferences that, that a state can have. But what I argue is we don't find these preferences, the whole set of preferences everywhere. So the European preference, set of preferences is basically limited by its program of modernity. And because, I mean, the way I have presented it is these are different types of modernities. They are not interrelated, and we can quickly identify them. That's, I have done that for reasons of simplification, but basically that's not what we would expect. We would find a lot of intermingling between these modernities. And I'm sure that if we would go back into history, we would easily recognize how much they are interrelated. So why do I go so deep? Because I believe that it's, um, it allows me to identify patterns that are, in a way, nevertheless, despite all this intermingling and so on, uh, unique to these regions. And um, so far, I mean, I find that really interesting because if one looks at um, how the U.S. Uh, approaches Asia, or let's say it's not the U.S. administration as such, but um, how, the, how most academics approach this topic is they sim simply say, well, I mean, in Asia we have that anarchy and we can basically transfer our whole framework to that area and then come up with good explanations and ultimately policy suggestions. And my argument is, well, this is misguided in the sense as it is simply to it just transfers the European experience to other regions and we might come up with the wrong policy prescriptions. So maybe we should have a closer look, and that means also a deeper look uh, to see what this regional setup is like. Um, one comment on Yeah. Basically, when I say contradictory, I'm, I mean, yes, they are saying something, but they don't stick to it. So it's basically the gap that I point to. Yeah. Okay. Um, my real question is, is about the comparison between <coughs> Europe and mm. 
Mm. Um, actually, I, I have been thinking about that too, especially since um, in focusing on the EU, I mean, we have basically the only international um, organization which has achieved that degree of integration. And if we look at, if we would look at different um, European organizations, let's say the um, OSCE, we might probably or most likely come up with completely different, uh, with a different analysis. But I'm not, I'm not so sure about this. Um, so the, um, I, I was really conscious of that. Um, and thought, okay, so, I mean, what would be the solution? Basically, I would have to draw a sample of all international organizations and then find out what is their relative, relative degree of, um, uh, of integration, how formalized are they. Um, and it's manageable, but at the same time, if we look at uh, this from a historical um, um, Perspective. It's also it's it's meaningless. I mean, maybe that's overdrawn, but I'm missing the right uh, expression at the moment because, I mean, in Europe we have basically all energies and resources focused on um, building up the European Union. So of course we do have um, other international institutions such as the WEU which are not as integrated and so on, which don't have the capabilities. But this only happened in relation to the EU process. So you can't really disentangle that and treat those as kind of independent observations. Mm -hmm. So the thing that, I mean, that would be required really to set up this, this design where I can in each case say what is precisely the um, level of integration is, in my view, impossible. I mean, if I would really do it strictly, it, I don't think that it would be possible. And um, so basically, um, the solution that I have chosen is maybe um, to come up with a kind ideal, typical, categorization of these two organizations and say, okay, we have on the one hand the EU, which stands out really as the most integrated international organization of the world. And we have on the other hand ASEAN, which is not institutionalized or not much institutionalized at all, but nevertheless produces certain desirable results. So um, that's maybe the frame uh, in which I would like to put it. But I'm not sure whether this is really um, possible. But what you are then doing is in 
imposing the European Union model <laughs> on, on uh, Asia. And that's easy for us in the room here to see, where it might not be so easy if you were imposing an American model, mm. uh, because we're a part of the American model and we don't see it so easily. Mm. But when you impose a European Union model on Southeast Asia, when the Southeast Asian um, uh, government's decision is to form ASEAN and then what they can use it for and so forth is so driven by other forces and other concerns and another context even another structure. Um, it's, it's very obvious to somebody who has experience in Southeast Asia that the European Union, you're asking the wrong question. Mm -hmm. You're asking why isn't ASEAN becoming a single country like the EU is mm. becoming a single country. But that's not a relevant question. They're not interested in that. They're mm. for that purpose, uh, and they're not acting within it. So you need some other frame. What about other regional organizations like SARC, the South mm. Asian Regional Cooperation Community with the Organization of African States? Mm. That way you could keep your comparison within, within the third world. Yeah. Actually, I thought about this, um, but... Um, so far, I mean, the, the whole debate on modernities is more focused on, on um, Asia and America. So if I would focus on an African um, organization, I would not know what kind of modernity I would see there. Um, and I realized that this, again, uh, poses a difficult question because if I, if I vary those two variables, social structure, and also the organization varies, then what is this whole design about? Um, but um, actually, I believe that I can't really, I can't strictly put it in a neat research design um, because of the fact, of the simple fact that this is a historically determined or shaped uh, process, and in that way also a unique process. I mean, um, these two organizations operate simply differently, and I completely agree with you that ASEAN never aspired to, to become a EU, and that I'm also conscious that it's really the big um, or one, I must, resist somehow the temptation to assume that ASEAN should develop into this kind of model. But that's precisely one, what, I want, uh, what I don't want to show. I'm basically saying we are expecting it to develop in this kind of direction. And not only from a European perspective, but even if you look at realist analysis, they basically assume that, for example, China, um, because China does not cooperate in international institutions, it is becoming a big enemy. enemy. I'm not sure whether China would actually um, agree with uh, such a description. So basically the institutional, the fact that institutions have been set up to resolve conflicts and to always um, is, a kind of, is the kind of background condition against which um, we evaluate things that are happening in international relations. So by comparing those two institutions, and actually I'm not really sure whether I will uh, 
keep that limited to ASEAN al alone or just um, take another comparative example. Um, I believe that it's possible to, to show that we definitely have to be more sensitive to these regional experiences. We're in a good position here. This is early for her project and also early for her time here at Rashan. <laughs> so even though I have to stop this now, yeah. uh, I'm not stopping any of you for uh, to come see her over the next year. She'll be here uh, through the entire year. And as she mentioned, this is early work, so I think we have a lot more opportunity to interact with her, and I invite everyone to do that. And she's also given me a terrific idea. A year or two ago, uh, we held a conference on environmental degradation in Central Asia, and the ambassador from Uzbekistan came and gave me this fantastic wedding robe. It's blue with sequins everywhere. It's amazing. And that's what we can have people wear when they come to town. We can start a new ritual. So, Zach, just get ready. I want to thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.